a little word about Psalm 43. It's an interesting song, psalm that uh, starts by vindicate me, O God. And it is in, in red, red against the backdrop of, of Jesus, or read Jesus in light of the psalm. And what happens in the resurrection is actually viewed as a vindication against the enemies of, of the Messiah. And so he vindicates him. And that is that's a large part of the meaning of the resurrection that uh, Jesus' obedience was to the Father was vindicated through his resurrection. He's proclaimed, Paul says, to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. He's enthroned, essentially. Uh, so turn, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6. Uh, last week, we looked at John uh, 1 through 15. Uh, today we're going to look. We're going to be looking at uh, sixteen through twenty-five. That's what I thought. So sixteen through twenty-five. This is the uh, this is the story of Jesus walking on the water. And if you read this, you read this story. It doesn't like it doesn't seem like there's much to it. And, uh, and maybe I'm imagining that there is more to it. But uh, but I think there is more to it. And uh, so we're going to get into that and see uh, the way that the allusions to scripture actually inform what he's saying here and and then lead to um, uh, some pretty good application as well. Let's, uh, let's pray before we begin. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for Jesus. And we thank you for uh, his obedience to, to you, Father. And uh, we thank you, Father, that his obedience led to the the conquering of, of the powers, the conquering of, of sin that enslaves us and led to our resurrection for those of us who embrace him. And we just pray, Father, today your spirit would be among us at work and in a powerful way that you would do among us things that um, can only be explained by your spirit. We give you thanks now. Pray these things in Jesus' name. At the end of last week's sermon, I briefly discussed John 6, 14 through 15, where after John fed the, the large crowd of people by multiplying the five loaves and the two fish, the people, quote, saw the sign and they said, this, this, truly, this is the prophet who has come into the world. Then Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. I asked uh, last week, isn't this what Jesus wanted them to do? To acknowledge him as king and as that prophet who was coming into the world. This prophet is, of course, exactly who Jesus wanted them to believe he was, the one he was claiming to be, not so much through his words, but through his actions. The description of this prophet this prophet, like Moses, is in Deuteronomy 34. So the sons of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the, the days of weeping and mourning for Moses came to an end. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. And the sons of Israel listened to him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. <clears throat> Since that time... No prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, for all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh, all his servants, and all his land, 
and for all the mighty power and for all the awesome acts which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. See also Deuteronomy 18, 15 for a description of what this prophet was going to do. Jesus most certainly is that prophet and he knows it. So what is he doing here rejecting their efforts to acknowledge him as king and make him king over them? This is not the first time he would do something that seems odd and incongruent with reality like this, rejecting people who seem to accept him, nor would it be the last. It is very much like the messianic secret theme in Mark, where Jesus doesn't want anyone to know who he truly is, his true identity. But it's not exactly like that. There he tells people and even demons to keep quiet about who he is. Here he leaves. He goes off by himself alone, so as not to bend to their will. He will not be trapped into being who he is not, defining himself in a way that is not in accordance with the scriptures. And foremost, he will not be subject to anyone but his father. And his father has chosen the way for him to become king, and it is not their way. It involves the cross. It involves dying to take away the sins of the world, dying to bring about the new exodus from Egypt, the Egypt of death and slavery, to truly set humanity free, bringing in the new creation and the new humanity in him. God in this way loved the world, he says, that he gave his only son, not in some other way. And this is part of the point of Jesus leaving everyone and going off by himself refusing to be installed as king according to their whims. It was not Jesus's choice to become king in any way he chose or that the people chose, but only in the way that the father had chosen for him to become king. An important point is to be made here about kings. Not all kings are alike, nor is every perception of what a king should be and do the same. And Jesus understands what they are expecting out of a king and neither he nor the scriptures fit this picture of what royalty should be as i said when we were going through mark jesus is not only becoming king he is defining what royalty should look like we see this in the passage in this passage in the sense that he is rejecting their view of royalty and we will see later in john in chapter 13 that jesus takes a basin and a towel and washes the feet of his disciples. In an act fitting for a servant only, he is defining what true royalty is, servant kingship, leading us to understand that forgiveness and cleansing are the marks of this royalty <clears throat> that he is bringing about for the renewal of the whole world. He is, he is restoring the royal vocation of Adam, of mankind as the true humanity recreated in himself, with himself as the one in whom all humanity is summed up. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and rule over it becomes a promise that Abraham's seed would rule the nations. And Jesus is defining what that means in terms of obedient death and servanthood. His hour had not yet come to be glorified, that is, to be made king. He says this, he says this often in John's gospel. And it had to happen in accordance with the scriptures. Through Jesus' own death and resurrection, through his humiliation 
and exaltation, what Psalm 43 was talking about. This was the way of the Son of Man, humiliation and exaltation, and the defeat of the powers that had enslaved humanity. The, de the defeat, as Paul would say, of the law of sin and death. It could be de defeated in no other way than through the bearing of that sin and death in his own body. Thus his withdrawal to the mountain to pray again was to say, this is not the time nor the manner for the son of, son of man to be made king. He must die and rise again to accomplish this. As we work through John, keep an eye out for this theme of glory, of Jesus' kingship, and the way that he avoids the definitions of the crowd and defines royalty in his own terms. We saw last week how the feeding of the crowd was a sign modeled on the Exodus narrative. And we saw how Jesus was doing the miracle, not simply to show that he was God made flesh, though it is true that no one can do signs like this except God be with him. He is doing the sign rather because it is a sign and it points to something beyond itself to the fulfillment of the scriptures. Continuing his theme of his theme of, <clears throat> of his role as judge from chapter five, this sign of the feeding of the 5,000 is another testimony that God is giving about Jesus, portraying Jesus himself as the true bread of heaven, his solidarity with the father who fed Israel manna from heaven in the wilderness and portraying the people as cravenly carnal in their appetite for the food they could see as though Jesus were some kind of snack machine to give them food on demand. Sure, we must not forget all his benefits. Bless the Lord, the psalmist says, O oh my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. But we should ask in return, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? What sacrifice might I give for the goodness of God towards me? We often, and you can hear it in our prayers, treat God as though he is our machine. Give us this, give us that. Give me this, give me that. When perhaps we ought to be saying, you have given so much, what shall I render unto you? Find your calling, ask what you can give, and give your life into his service. So we turn today to a short little passage, chapter 6, 16 through 21, to another sign. Jesus is walking on the water. We should recall the previous section once again to ask if there is <clears throat> continuity or connection between it and this one. Always ask that. When you're reading the Gospels, always ask, is there continuity? And what is that continuity? Because there will be. <clears throat> it seems to have no real place within the story. But Matthew and Mark also record this sign, and they too situate it immediately after the feeding of the 5,000. This should give us a clue that the ordering is actually very important, that it's, it's thematic. Something's going on here in the relationship between these stories. Let's read it. John 6, 16 through 25. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, 
and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus had, according to this passage, gone up to a mountain by himself alone. The other two gospels add that he was praying there. His disciples, whether from impatience or not, we don't know, went down from the mountain to the Sea of Galilee, where they got into a boat to go to Capernaum. But Jesus was not with them. The darkness was closing in on them, and yet they were going up the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee, apparently because the way around the shoreline was not open for travel or was more difficult, difficult than the route by the sea. As they were going, they encountered strong winds and the sea became rough. Jesus then goes to them, walking on the water and frightening them. They let him into the boat and in an instance, they arrive at their destination. That's it. That's the miracle. It's quite short and it seems to have very little purpose. Back to our question, what relationship does this story have with what went before? First, we must remember that this, that John has framed the story around the Passover festival and the Exodus, though he seems to have left the story about the bread of life, that isn't the case, since he returns to it as part of his reply to the people when they ask this question. If we think about the Exodus story, there is an incident involving water that should come to mind. What would that be? There's out there several of them. But what should that be? What comes to mind when you think about the Exodus and water? Well, for any good Jew, the Red Sea, the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus 14 would come to mind. Now, we, we might expect that there would be a similar message here in John, like that in Exodus, relating to the victory of God over Egypt or something like that. But that doesn't seem to be the way John is using the story or what he is saying by its usage. Thematically, there are other messages at work in this section, especially for the disciples, but also in relation to the people. God's presence versus his absence, and the provision of God versus privation that, uh, that the, the people are to depend upon. Here's what I mean. At the beginning of this story, the disciples depart, leaving Jesus alone. Now, this is not necessarily bad in itself, and perhaps it's not bad at all, but it provides Jesus with an opportunity to impress upon them the lesson of the feeding of the 5,000. Remember how in the middle of nowhere, Jesus had taken what was there and multiplied it and fed the whole crowd, leaving enough food to fill 12 baskets afterwards. We saw that in that section, Jesus was drawing on the story of the feeding of Israel in the wilderness to say, positively, you shall not lack bread for your wilderness 
wanderings. You will not starve as I take you to your inheritance, eternal life, the resurrection, the promised land, so to speak, as a sign of resurrection. In other words, I will be with you, a refrain we often hear as we read the Exodus story, and I will provide for you along the journey through the wilderness to your inheritance. As he said in Mos to Moses in Exodus 3.12, and he said, certainly I will be with you. That's what he tells Moses. Feeding you with food from heaven. From the previous sign he has turned, bringing you, uh, he has turned this into, I will bring you to the other side. And this means, as he will later tell them, I will be with you wherever you go through the spirit that I will send in my absence. John 13, 13 33. Little children, I am with you a little longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I will ask the Father, he says in 14, 16, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides in you and will be in you. These things I have spoken to you while I was with you. Emmanuel, God with us, is part of the message here to the disciples. The disciples, so it seems, needed to understand this for the mission that they themselves would receive after he ascended to the Father. If we frame it again within the story of Exodus, God will be with you. I will be with you, Jesus says, like the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. I will go before you and behind you, like the messenger of God went before and behind Israel as they traveled. In fact, I think there's here a signal that we are to understand this passage in that light. If we look at Exodus chapter 14, verses 19 and following, we will see the connection between this story and the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus. Within our current passage, Jesus is coming after them, and he will take them to their destination protecting them along the way. In Exodus 14, 19, we have a detail that is quite subtle, and perhaps it's only my imagination, but I don't think so. There we read the following. The angel of God, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel, and there was the cloud along with the darkness yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on dry land and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Now, John doesn't tell the story of Jesus' walking on water in exactly the same way. One, because they are not the same events. There are, however, several similarities that would, should catch our attention. The pillar of cloud and fire has been going before them in the wilderness up until this time in the story, leading them on the way that they should go. But at this point in the story, the angel of God, mentioned only here in Exodus in this form, expressly moves from before them to behind them, so as to shield them from the Egyptian army, which was pursuing them. Here, this angel of God is equated with the pillar of cloud and fire. 
which had been the presence of God himself going before the camp of Israel. In Exodus 13, 21 through 22, we read that the Lord was going before them in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And then this mysterious figure, the angel of God, shows up there with the pillar of cloud, moving to the back while the pillar of cloud moves also. Listen to these two passages, Exodus 13, 21 and 22, and then Exodus 14, 19. The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. And then 14, 19. The angel of God, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. It's a bit of a mystery, but the angel here is at once equated with the Lord himself, but yet distinct from him. Much like the Logos is God, but he is not the Father. This and passages that say that God has never been seen suggest that the angel is the God you see, in the same way that Jesus is God you see, a type of pre-incarnate son who appears to people as though the Lord himself has appeared to them. But back to our comparison between the two stories. In a similar way that God's presence moves from before to behind, so Jesus comes after the disciples after they set out for Capernaum. In the fourth watch of the night, according to Matthew and Mark, another subtle reference to the Exodus passage, as we will see. That presence of God that had brought Israel out of Egypt was forming a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, and in like manner, Jesus, the very presence of God with us, is forming a holy nation, a kingdom of priests from his disciples, and his presence will not leave them. Nor will it, nor will he leave us as we remain within his will and seek his ways, as we find and stay within his mission for us. Though the wind and waves threaten us, the Lord will be with us, and we can rest in that assurance. And there's a bit more. The language of John used to describe their reception of Jesus into the boat, I thought was very interesting. He says in chapter 6, verse 21 of John, so they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. He does not say, so they received him into the boat. Rather, they were willing to receive him into the boat. It was not simply that they took him in, but that they desired that he come into the boat. It was not simply that they brought him onto the boat. They wanted him there. It was precisely this reception, the desiring of his presence, that got them to the other side immediately, John says. It is as though John is saying to the disciples, that Jesus is saying to the disciples and to those who have ears to hear, there are times when you are in the midst of the sea, figuratively speaking, and the winds are threatening to take the boat down. But when you welcome me in, though that may be frightening, you will find yourself on the other side of your trouble and security before you know it. As God's presence, he is God with you, and you will come through. Listen for that voice that says, it is I. Do not be afraid. Take him on board, and immediately there was calm. And amazingly, this is exactly what he does with us today. I think this is part of the point. 
What about the crowd? Apparently, the crowd in this passage that had been with Jesus and the disciples the day before had seen that the disciples had set off for Capernaum, but that Jesus had stayed behind. And there had only been one boat there, so Jesus couldn't have taken another boat in secret. This is their dilemma. Other boats come from Tiberias, apparently landing at the, at the place from where the disciples had departed and where Jesus would have been expected to leave from. But he wasn't there either. With no other option, assuming they wanted to find Jesus, they departed in small boats to get to Capernaum themselves. We don't know how they had a hunch that he and, disciple, he and the disciples were there or that he was there, other than the fact that the disciples probably had let someone know where they were going. But that's what they thought, and they were correct. But they were confused, and it doesn't seem that they got an answer to their question about when Jesus arrived there. They say, Rabbi, when did you get here? He says, you seek me because you ate and were filled. That's not exactly the answer they were expecting. What is he doing? Is he being snobbish, obtuse? Once again, we, the audience, are confronted with the crowd seemingly waiting to find Jesus, which is a respectable and even a commendable goal. What else were they to do? They're seeking Jesus. It's a reasonable question. But what is required of us as readers is that we figure out why, from Jesus's and John's perspective, Jesus responds the way he does. Is it the fickleness of the people? That is, their own changing loyalties, their own changing interests and affections? But what is the key to understanding what is going on here? Is there a text to which we can look? And I think there is. Look back at Exodus 14. We read 19 uh, earlier, where the angel of God, before the parting of the sea, moved to the back, back side of Israel. In tw verse 20, the pillar, the angel, came between Egypt and Israel, and Israel was protected from the Egyptians. Verse 21, then, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, so the waters were divided. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right and on their left. Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit, it says in verse 23, and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. Verse 24, at the morning watch, remember I said Matthew and Mark both use this idea of the morning watch in order to give us a clue that they're referring to this story in the book of Exodus. At the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve, and he made them drive through, through with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel, for the Lord is fighting for them and against the Egyptians. There's a comparison going on within this story in John. But who is who within this story? It seems to me that, that John is, once again, portraying the Israel of his day as a character or a group within the Exodus story. But this time, he doesn't portray them as recalcitrant Israel, who are begging for more food, but as the Egyptian army following after Jesus and his disciples. 
several parallels between the two stories uh, such that Jesus is walking on water indicate such that Jesus is walking on water as a reenactment of sorts of Israel's sea crossing. But the characters have changed. Israel went through the sea on dry ground. When he reached the boat, Jesus did, immediately they were to their destination. They made it through the sea in spite of the strong waves. In the morning watch, the Lord causes confusion in the army of Egypt. The fourth watch in Matthew 14, 25, is the time when Jesus walks to them on the water, corresponding roughly to the morning watch in Exodus. The Lord brought the army of Egypt into confusion. What is it that we see from the crowds who were following Jesus other than confusion? When did you get here, they ask, and he gives them no answer. He's throwing them into confusion. They aren't at this point trying to overtake Jesus, but they are pursuing and they don't even seem to know why, other than to get some more food to eat. To ask Jesus to do another miracle, which they go on to do in just a few verses. The analogies correspond like a good parable in some ways, but not in others. And it is our job as careful readers to figure out where these stories map on to one another. Or to put it another way, where John wants us to see such analogies. Jesus, it seems, is like Israel here, going through the sea, as it were, on dry ground. The people then are given the role of Egypt's army under judgment for trying to kill God's firstborn son as God does his great act of deliverance. There are all kinds of resonances here as John wishes us to hear. God's firstborn son, Israel, in the original story is here Jesus, as we've heard in John 3.16 and elsewhere. And he is not being delivered, but is affecting a great deliverance on behalf of all mankind, the whole world, in fact. And the crowds and the Jewish leaders are attempting, unaware exactly what they're doing at some level, to stop Jesus from effecting that great deliverance. The people are attempting to do it in one way, by making him king as their new David who will deliver them from political oppression, whereas the leaders are attempting to prevent him from becoming king by killing him. There is irony here, of course, because it will be through his death that he becomes king. But that's what they're trying to do. This is thus another instance of Jesus dealing with a people under judgment. Israel, the Jews of his day, were given manna from heaven, the very bread of life, and all they could see and pursue was their next meal. Time was running out for them, and it seems they go deeper and deeper into the darkness, like Egypt's army. They are seeking him, yes, but their desires for him are carnal. They want Jesus so he can feed them free meals, but he is asking that they consume him, like Jeremiah eating God's words. We must be careful not to end up in a similar situation, seeking Jesus for our own carnal desires. Do we seek him for our own desires, for our own ends, to get some snack from the machine, or do we seek him as a refuge? as the source of life, the one who has the words of eternal life, as Peter says, and then to join in in what he's doing in this world. Do you know that some people come to church for their business prospects? That's what I mean. That's part of what I mean. I'm sure you do to get status within the community or just to get some good old luck from going to church. Jesus is not our genie in a bottle to whom we come to get things, 
He is the one through whom the world is being transformed. And we are to be involved in that transformational ministry. We are called to oneness with God through Christ and his mission in and to the world. This is why Paul says, it's as though God is making his appeal through us as ministers of reconciliation. We are, he says in 2 Corinthians 6.1, working together with him, with the Messiah we're working. We want to see big things happen, of course, but these big things happen when our purpose is united with God's purpose. I become more and more convinced that our prayers, in light of all of these all prayer chains and things that we have going on, and, and don't get me wrong, we should pray about everything. We should really pray about everything, and I, um, I mean that. But I, I do become more and more convinced that our prayers are mostly ineffective and perhaps even unnecessary when they aren't mission-related, mission-oriented. We ask amiss that we may consume it upon our lust, as James says. I'm speaking to myself here as well, because I find myself when I go to the Lord, Lord, give me this, Lord, give me that, without regard to the mission. Prayer is, as someone has said, a wartime walkie-talkie designed for mission. If God's work is being done, then prayers get answered and big things happen. So much of our prayers are wasted on things God intends to take care of anyway, so long as we are doing his work. How can we summarize the story? First, the story of Jesus walking on the water to his disciples when standing on its own seems rather short and pointless, unless we assume he's just putting on a show, a display of his power, being God all over the place. We have seen, I hope, though, that actually the event was intended to work within the same Passover story that we looked at within the first part of the chapter, the feeding of the 5,000. In that story, Israel, once again, not positively, was being portrayed as Israel under condemnation in the wilderness, desiring more and more, lusting after meat when they already had the bread from heaven to get them into the land. In our current story, the story of Israel's time coming out of Egypt is once again evoked, but this time the characters and the events have changed. We find ourselves at the Red Sea, watching the pursuit of Israel by Egypt's army. And the people of Jesus' day are now being seen as those who pursue Jesus, but who are now undergoing the confusion, just as the Egyptian army was thrown into confusion while chasing Israel. Now read the rest of six and see what happens to this crowd. They go away. So, like this is the point where they go away. So, like the Egyptian army, they see what's going on. They're thrown into a confusion and they say, we've got to turn back. Turn back. Like, right now, it's turn back. And when Jesus starts talking about eating my flesh and drinking my blood, they, many of his disciples turn back and quit following him. I think there's, I think there's an analogy going on. We find ourselves at the Red Sea watching the pursuit of Israel by Egypt's army and the people of Jesus' day are now being seen as those who pursue Jesus, but who are undergoing confusion. They're thrown into confusion. They are ultimate, ultimately being brought into judgment, drowned in the Red Sea, and a different judgment within John's gospel awaits the people who have rejected Jesus. But judgment it is. It is. In 666, like the Egyptian army, they will flee from Jesus. They will withdraw, it says, and not walk with him anymore, many of his disciples. 
not the 12, but many of the other disciples that he had. We saw in chapter 5, and this can be reiterated, that Jesus would be exalted to the right hand as judge. And for these people who seek Jesus for their for treats, their judgment will be based on such. Rather than listening to the voice and the words of Jesus, they sought signs to fulfill the flesh. They stand under judgment. What's the progression within the book of John where the crowd goes from just kind of innocent uh, onlookers, people who are questioning to those who are actually standing under judgment. This is what's going on. It's a developing story. And we should read it in that light, not as simply these little, little stories that kind of stand on their own. There's a development, a progression within the story. And Jesus is taking them into the law court, so to speak, and bringing evidence, bringing judgment against them, or bringing evidence against them, which will stand against them in the judgment. The disciples, however, and we too who follow him and seek his words and will, were to be comforted, for they were brought to the other side, and they were also shown grace and patience as he taught them about his true identity. Of course, they were a bit dull during Jesus's ministry, as we would have been as well, but they were taught and they were shown grace, and that grace is what accompanies all who seek Jesus for who he truly is and submit to him as Lord. Next week, we will look at Jesus's response which doesn't really answer the question that they asked, but it's going to be a response and it's going to result in more and more people turning away from him and bringing him to the point of, of being killed by, by the leadership. 